Hello and welcome to Design Assembly Conversations, an interview series with New Zealand graphic designers. Design Assembly seeks to hear the stories of New Zealand graphic designers, get to know who we are and celebrate New Zealand graphic design. Hi, I'm Louise, founder of Design Assembly. Today I'm speaking to Welby Ings. Welby Ings is a professor at the Auckland University of Technology in the graphic design department. He also writes and directs his own films. To date, he has produced two short films, Boy and Munted. In 2006, Boy was nominated for an Academy Award. Currently, he is working on his third short film, Sparrow. Welcome, Welby. Welby, I'd like to start by asking you where you've come from. I, um, my background's not that, not that glowing. I, um, I, I was born in a small rural area. I grew up in a, a two-teacher um, primary school, and I couldn't read or write until I was 15. And that was the best education you could get for a graphic designer because I learned from an early age to think in images, mm. and I learned to read images because in the books you were given, I couldn't get into the text. So in a way, I had a very sophisticated schooling by default. And, uh, but I'm also really glad I came from a, a rural background because I'm a very practical man. So they, they, having fancy words that spell things that aren't there counted for nothing in that world. So as a result, I've, I'm quite a, a focused, practical guy who understands and loves the power of images and space. Mm. And words came later, I can use those fine, but they're not the most sophisticated things for me. And do you think that helped you form your own ideas and have your own thoughts and processes that you didn't have that influence from the written word? When I was at school, it was called commercial art back in the day. Mm. And commercially, you saw lots of examples of other people's work and the understanding was that you were supposed to do stuff like that. And so, but from an early age, I understand if you, if you, if you grow up on the outside, you spend all your life having to find other ways around mm. things. And so that even when I saw the first commercial art and I thought, yeah, this is where I'd love to be, I always kept thinking, so what would my take on that be rather than how can I make my stuff look like that? Mm. So it was actually a really helpful thing. And that's why I think lots of designers who have been on the outside or grew up on the outside, although it's tough when we're growing up, it gives us an edge because it becomes our natural default way of thinking. And when did you have that first moment of seeing commercial um, art and, and thinking, yes, this is what I want to do. When did that happen? When I was at secondary school in, in, in for, what was back in the day called Form 5, um, art was only offered to the dumb class mm. and fortunately I was in the dumb class and what it meant was what was called ticket writing and sign writing which, oh fuck, that nearly killed typography for me, you know. But um, I, in town, we had um, we were we were taken uptown to watch people doing um, writing sign writing on windows. But there was a shop there called in Te Aumutu dialect Potpourri, mm. and Potpourri was the art shop in town. But it had artwork from local painters, and I fell in love with it. And I used to wag school all the time to go up there, and they knew I was wagging school. But out the back. That we'd have cups of coffee and meet these these incredible thinkers, these incredible artists and potters, and I realised that was my family. Mm. I realised this was there was a place to belong. So my first insight wasn't because I suddenly saw something come burgeoning out of the design for the the Olympics or something. It was people mm. who I realised thought 
and lived passionately around images. Mm. And you actually studied to be a teacher, a high school teacher, um, and at the University of Waikato. Uh, so that was 1976. And then in 1995, you completed a Bachelor of Graphic Design at AUT. So obviously there's a, there's a large um, gap there, you know, 20 years. So you had this love of, of commercial art. And how did you come to decide to study teaching and be a teacher at high school level for 20 years? So I, I went to Europe. I, I, I started teaching and I hated it. It was just mm. beige and it was just so formulaic. And I just thought, oh, this wasn't what I imagined. So I left and I went to Europe and um, worked for a while back in the day when it was Saatchi and Saatchi. That was one of my early jobs. Um, and I started working, but I, I really, very quickly I found I didn't like really like the company of large organisations because the larger the organisation I found, the more I was in a little compartment. And so I, um, I ended up working as a designer for Bristol-Myers and I quite liked that because there were only a couple of designers there and we had to, there was more flexibility. We were filling out more zones. And, um, and then I, um, in New Zealand, I, I kept balancing that between that and sometimes going back teaching because I, I love ideas. I love ideas. And I like, I love working with people who are by nature just a bit disobedient. They don't try to be. It's just what happens. And in areas of teaching, you can come across those people. And I, I always think that I'm most interested in people when there's a horizon that they, they can sense but they can't see, that those are the people I love working with. So I found teaching very rewarding, but I can't do it on its own. So I have to always have something in another form of creativity going on at the same time. I, I just I get bored. And it's not to say that teaching isn't fulfilling or that um, designing... Uh, creating isn't fulfilling, but I just seem to have to have both things at the same time. Yeah. I'm a guts. Yeah. <laughs> so you went back and um, also did your Masters of Arts at um, Kent in the UK. And how did you decide to complete this postgraduate study overseas and not in New Zealand? Because I had um, started working as a designer in the UK, I I'd realised that it's actually, for me, it was quite helpful to, to study and work in different places in the world. And it's why still my, my film work, I mean, my film work, although it's New Zealand stories, it's not designed for the New Zealand public, which is why it gets all its awards overseas. And so I've always seen, I've always seen myself as a, a, a Kiwi in the world rather than a Kiwi in New Zealand and the world's just offshore. So I, I studied in the UK and, and discovered what an appalling education system it was. And it, it, it gave me great hope and belief in, in our education system, um, which is much more human-focused, much more... Much more um, I think we grow up in groups, from shared reading to working in groups on a social studies project. We are... It's a distinctive thing about the New Zealand education system that we're very group-oriented, very responsible to groups of people, whereas highly individualistic societies don't have that. And so, you know, I don't ever believe that competition is the way you get ahead. You get ahead by brave cooperation. You know, you, get, you have to have really great skills with working with other people. There's no, there's very few stages that can just cope with one prima donna. And you um, talked about working in the UK in your early career in graphic design. And can you think of any standout moments or um, projects or pivots 
that um, influenced your the trajectory that you were upon or changed your trajectory? Yeah, but this is going to be a strange answer to your question. One day I was in the underground and a, um, a movie had come out, I think it might have been called Rabid, and there was this huge, huge poster of a human frothing at the mouth. It was it was a devastating poster. And I was waiting there to get on the underground. And the underground is so dirty, like no one ever wore white shirts mm. in the 70s because they just turned grey. And um, I was sitting there looking at this poster and this train came sweeping across it and this blast of air. And I realised that my white shirt was no longer white and this image had been erased off the wall. And I thought, I'm not supposed to be here. I know it's a really odd, odd story, but I'm not supposed to be here. I need to go back to somewhere where my shirt is going to be white and where great things don't get wiped off the wall by the sudden arrival of the daily train. And so I came back to New Zealand trying to seek for something that would have a bit more permanence and a bit more um, hu humanity in it. So I know it's a really odd story to mm. tell. So it wasn't that I suddenly did a project and went, oh, this is, this is how I want yogurt cartons to be for the rest of my life. And so you, you got into film, film writing, <laughs> and, but you infamously don't write your scripts, you draw them. And in a recent talk, you actually talked about, you said, I don't see myself as a film director, I'm a film designer. I hold the word designer in quite high esteem. Can you unpack this for us? Yeah, I'm proudly a designer. So it doesn't matter, I, I, I design houses and cars and films and teaching activities and I, I design all I think design is or, or what I think design is is a conscious orchestration of elements so it's a conscious thing that you do and it's the very strategic placing of things in relationship that will give you more than the individual components in it so I don't, um, I, I worked in theatre for a while, I've worked as an illustrator, I've worked as a designer. What film gives me is I can orchestrate sound, pace, colour, tone, emotion, narrative, character. I, for a guy who likes playing multiple level chess, it's the most logical, logical medium to work in. And the other thing is that you cannot make film as a prima donna. You have to be really good with a team. And you've got to be able to know when you cannot do something as well as the person who's working with you. And that's how you get great work. So it was a natural field waiting that the kid back in Te Aumutu having coffee out the back of Polpuri didn't know really about. Mm. It was just, it's the natural environment for someone like me to work in. Mm. And were there quite steep learning curves within that process? Or did you... Uh, and did you do research on that or, and, and study, or did you feel your way into the...? I, I tend not to study anything before I go into it. I, I'm a pukiata, a farm boy. I stumble into things. But I stumbled in and, f and felt it was home very quickly. And, and simply because while, while I like my job at the university, academic thinking is not hard enough. It's not, it's not challenging enough. The being in the world of the unknown and having to draw something into being as a full-fleshed thing from just a flicker of an idea, that's tough. So I love that rigour. I really love it. So it was a natural... It's, an, it's a natural calling for 
really, uh, I know it sounds like a wanker, but for really intelligent thinking, you need lots and lots of unknowns that are hungry, need lots of problem solving in it. And you can't just solve the singular because the singular is going to impact on the sound or the colour or the performance. So you have to be solving things on multiple levels mm. at once. And that's why I think, that's why I'm so proud of the word design, because it's not a linear thing. You know, we all exist in, in whole networks of stuff. Any push we make on a piece of type alters space, it alters reading, it alters tone, it alters emotion, it alters how that thing is going to be felt by somebody. And so that concept of um, enjoying the problem solving and the big ideas and the unknown, do you think then you need to have, that also needs to go hand in hand with the detail and the craft? I'm, um, I'm really glad you brought up the word craft. You know, in the 1990s, it was a filthy word. Mm. You know, everyone sort of associated craft with being some kind of, somebody with one IQ point above brain death. Craft, I think, is the way we show respect to an idea. And I've always loved the company of people who will labour over something and will keep on when other people would walk away and go, that's good enough, and they go, no, it's not. And craft also is discipline. And I don't see that you can reach levels of excellence without really strong self-discipline. And craft is what teaches me discipline because when I try and skip across by doing something glossy, it shows up. So yeah, I have huge respect for it and I have huge respect for people who hold that in high esteem. And how long did the um, stories for Boy and Munted sit inside you for? I was listening to another talk recently of yours and... Um found it interesting that the germ of the for the idea of Munted came from a conversation with a pair when you were a teenager and I think that you know quite conflicting to the current mode of today where it's it's very fast paced people want a new idea tomorrow what do you think about that I think as designers sometimes uh, when Michael Rock wrote his his paper about claiming that designers could also be authors I think inadvertently he touched on something he said, yes, we do live in a world of immediate problem solving, but we are capable of another world that is, is dwelled in, that we exist as human beings, and we have inspirations coming into our world all the time. So we, we're built, we looked at what we spit out, but we actually contain a huge amount behind that. Mm -hmm. It's like we only see the front window on the house, but in fact there's, there's whole mansions behind. And so I have hundreds of stories, some that I don't even realise are relevant, and I, I always think that that's how, how um, wonderful designers are. They, they accumulate life and then a situation will come up and it will suggest something from our past. Mm. And the ability is to go find the ways to exhume that and then to give that voice. So I think that's why oftentimes designers live very rich life. They, they constantly know that we have to expose ourselves to things, not necessarily even consciously. We just do it, whether it's motherhood or whether it's the film festival. We, we do it in a very uh, rich way because we know innately that there's a high chance somewhere that we're going to be drawing on that and that's it's no there's a high chance that that is going to make us a great human being and we draw our ability from being great human beings and do you keep um, a visual journal or a written journal no no and I've never I mean I know you know mo when most of us were trained in design there was this thing about keep a journal, keep a journal. I thought that's bollocks because lots of knowledge doesn't exist in ways that you can document it. It exists in something felt. But I do think that being conscious and aware in the world is important. So to walk through the world in an aware way. So 
you know, I, I've just come back from Norway. I, I, I led a, a, a group of philosophers on a conference walk, which was three days walking in the forest. Because my idea was if you put philosophers in a room and sanitize it and focus them on somebody talking, it's not a lived experience. You come out with your brain like porridge. You stop listening after about two hours and pretend. So we went walking. And the, and all that is is, is is just going, what if you put great minds and make them conscious in the world with downtime? So there were blueberries ripe. So you're eating blueberries, having a cup of tea, and talking about how do you deal with the notion of terrorism disabling whole nations. And it's a much more honest way of working. And you get to much better solutions. So, and I just think if you, if you come back, it's, it's the thing about being conscious in the world. And oftentimes we can become almost unconscious in the world. We just traverse it and we allow other people to distort the realities for us. And we go, oh, this is the big issue because I heard it on YouTube. You know, and you go, that's no, not the big issue. It's not the big issue. And so how do you spend your downtime and, you know, what energizes you and, and stimulates those new... So that's a really good question. Mm. And so this is where I sound a bit odd. I don't have TV. I don't get newspapers. Uh, I don't any longer have a cell phone. Um, at night, I, uh, I write or I draw or I make things for people I love or I build or I design or I... Oh, it's going to sound like a wink. I dream. I just mm. sit and think of cool stuff. And that's, that's what, so I, while it's called downtime, I actually see it as the ultimate mm. uptime. Mm. Uh, it's the thing where, um, and, and then I go to sleep beautifully, you know, because I've, I've, I've been in a quieter place, but it's a deeper place. And uh, I know it sounds a bit zen, but in fact, it's, it's a way of being conscious in the world. I don't do it deliberately thinking that, but that's actually what it's hungering for. You have a lovely meal, you know, you light the fire, you sit down and you draw. And you're not drawing for a purpose other than something has caught your attention and you bring it into being before you go to sleep. And that, that's reminding me of my time as a teenager. And I think that's, for a lot of us, maybe that's the last time you have that, that space in your own room. And that's how I used to spend my evenings, you know, lighting candles, cutting up magazines and creating collages and painting and drawing for myself. And somewhere along that... And you know, in, in entering the world and growing up, you um, get absorbed into what you think you should be doing and, and the world that you think you should be in. So that's absolutely yeah. one of the ways I think sometimes we can give ourselves permission for it is when we make things for people we love. Yeah. Like I don't think there's a single graphic designer hasn't been hit up to make the wedding invitations for a friend or the birthday present for somebody or the, you know we we have this beautiful gift to be able to 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 make worlds. Mm. And so sometimes when, it, when we're living in a very kind of um, defined world, the place we get to do that is we, we have to have a purpose for it to have priority. And so you go, well, it's, um, it's my mum's 70th birthday. I'm going to make her something. Mm-hmm. Or one of my kids is um, um, coming back from camp. I'm going to make them something. And we can do it that way, you know, but it's a way that we step outside. We're still essentially designing, but we're designing for human, from a very human base. Mm. So I think that's a, that's a really ground-level one. Mm. But, you know, I know heaps of people who they just, like when they go on holiday, actually the last thing they want to do is spend lots and lots of time with people. They actually need a little bit of time alone. They just, I just think it's a natural call that we have. And now you're working on your first feature-length film, Punch, and can you tell us a bit about what the leap is like from making a short film to a, a feature-length film? 
I actually, I have a, a dirty history. Before that, I used to make television features, and I was so ashamed of them, you know. And uh, and so when I say I make, when I say my trajectory in film was started with the short film Boy, and then Munted, that's because my true filmmaking started there. I'd made TVCs and all that other stuff, and, and it was fine, it was fine, but it wasn't, it wasn't very real. And um, oh god, that sounds sixties, but you know what I mean. Anyway. Um, so, so, so punches um, Sparrow. I'm trying to work out a way of showing what shell shock looks like. So I'm trying to find an impossible thing. And in punch, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever been in a car accident, but I've been punched in the head before, and something extraordinary happens to the way you see the world in that moment. Mm -hmm. And so, punch is about a boxer who, while there is a, a, a terrible fight at the end. I'm trying to show what it would be like if you were punched in the head living in a small town and how he would see that when he's adored, but he actually doesn't want to be a boxer and he starts walking away from it and starts getting punished for it. So I like impossible questions and I just, I get sick of seeing New Zealand film over and over again recycling the same damn stories. It's just almost like we're in this thing of creating a commercial Kiwiana. So, and we look at it and we go, oh, another story of, another story of, and yet there are huge stories under here that we never tell. Mm -hmm. And all of my films to date have dealt with that. And Punch just gives me the chance to take that across 90 minutes, which is a very different structure to a short film. And... Um, but what it does is it allows you to dig much deeper into characters. So your three characters in that film, it's a love story between a solo dad and his son, which is not the love story we normally tell. Mm. But it goes, so what is a relationship when a man can't show affection to the very thing that he loves and needs? And what is it when a son can't communicate with his dad? So you ask those really difficult questions, and then you've got lots of room to explore. Mm. And I know watching your short films, Boy and Munted, I definitely was left with that sense of wanting more. So to hear that there's going to be a 90-minute, you know, I think that, as you talked about, fully exploring a theme. Do you know, I, I don't know if you've, you've got this, but I, I always think a great film is one that a week later it's still in your head. You know, we can go to these amazing moments of sensation movies. We sit there, but we walk out, and 10 minutes later, it's actually all over. Mm. Whereas I think great films, great novels, great designs, great art... They actually, their power is that they get inside us and ask us questions, and we're living, wanting to be in that conversation. Mm. And because, and I think it is because they touch the human condition, mm. and that's a different kind of design and a different kind of filmmaking to just making the sensation and the allure of the immediate. Mm. And what do you think the differences are between um, stage shows and theatre? You know, when they didn't have film in terms of telling our stories? I always find theatre, I, I used to work in theatre mm. and um, I have no defences against it because I, I just suspend disbelief when I see something so I'll get totally into it. So theatre can, I can walk out absolutely ravaged, you know sort of staggering out needing desperately a coffee and, and, and desperately to process all this stuff that I've taken because I've got no defences. But it's ephemeral. It disappears. When the curtain comes down, there's no living record of it. So it can only... Its power is it can only affect the people who were there at that moment. Whereas film, if it's really well-crafted, can can affect... It can have a whole life of its own outside of you. It, it's, it remains accessible. And it also means that people who work on it, the actors, the production crew, the, the post-production people, 
the testament of their creativity remains living too. So when we're working in, in theatre, you know, if I'm doing the lighting design or I'm directing the work um, or I'm acting in it, its preciousness and power is in that explosive moment of performance, but it's also its demise, it's also its death. And while that's, that's the peculiar and wonderful quality of it, for me, I want something... I've recognised the power, and I think that's as through design of making permanent texts, mm. I've recognised the power of something else. Yeah. And, you know, now so many more people or everyone has access to making film and showing it on YouTube, on Facebook. But obviously it, a lot of them are not designed and crafted, but they're telling people's stories mm. and they're out there. Mm. Wow. That's a very, that's a really good point. And I think you hit the word with craft in it. You know, there's lots of fonts out there too, but it's a typographer who can take that from language to poetics, you know, and it's a, it's a craftsman who can take, this is my, I'm a filmmaker, I shot this and put it on YouTube, to telling a human story that you cannot forget. You cannot forget because it is crafted at such a level you don't even see what they've done. All you know is that you walked away with your heart screwed up into a little knot, and it has and it start or that they've taken something a fear of yours and shown it in a new way. So I think your word craft lies at the at the centre of it. Just like some things are available, some technologies, but having the technologies available does not improve the quality of the work. That lies in the thinker behind it, in the designer behind it. So in September, we're lucky to have you um, showing your two short films, Boy and Munted, and delivering a director's talk. What can we look forward to hearing more about? Well, actually, I'm going to sneak in there the trailer for the new film too, because um, we're, we're just about to edit that, but we've shot it, and um, I'm very proud of it. I always, I always try to do... I'm very critical of my work, as lots of us are, but it also means that you know when you've got something working. And um, so I'm going to talk about that and the pathway forward, but really it's a talk, because we're all designers, you can talk about your film in a different way. You know, it, when normally when filmmakers talk, they talk about the world of celebrity and, and how was it working with that actor and how was it... When you're sitting with designers, you can go, so this is where the colour palette comes from. If you look at this and this and this, you can talk about that deeper stuff, which is actually, I think it's great for us designers to be part of that, but it's actually wonderful as a designer to be able to talk about that stuff with people because it's not the priority for people who consume film, but it is the priority for people who make stuff. And uh, so, um, but I'm going to heavily illustrate the thing. Like, it's... um, and uh, I'll show both of the films. I'll show a little bit of the other one. I'll, I'll touch on on some of the thinking behind it. But um, as you say, you know, my approach is I don't write scripts. I, um, I don't. I only only at the point where you have to get funding and uh, I translate all the drawings through. So I talk through a process that I think is might in fact be familiar or at least identifiable by a very unique kind of audience, and that's the audience that's made up of designers. Sounds great. We're look, looking forward to that. I'd like to thank you very much for your time today, Welby, and for being um, the first person in the Design Assembly Conversations podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. For more information in relation to this interview, please go to the podcast links and resources on our website, designassembly.org.nz.